everyone, and welcome back to the Timsa Leadership Podcast. My name is Eric Claus, and I truly have the honor to be able to be your host. In this episode, I have a conversation with an amazing person and great friend, Mr. Chad Hollinsworth. Chad is a paramedic, nurse, educator, leader, and a mentor to many of us. In this conversation, Chad and I discuss some lessons learned from an event that was so significant it was career-ending for some. Chad's story of resilience is one that I know you will want to share with others. So Chad, I am... I'm fired up, man. Yeah. You're here today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, man, thanks for inviting me out. It's great. This is going to be fun. <clears throat> you have a lot of experience. You've been in this field for about 20 years. You've uh, been a firefighter, an instructor, a great instructor, by <laughs> the way, and firefighter, paramedic, um, flight paramedic. And recently you had a very interesting part of your journey because you finished nursing school. Yes. And you came off the aircraft and <laughs> you went to the ICU, which for those listening, that is nauseating for some, right? You're going from a pre-hospital <laughs> setting and then you're going to an ICU. But what was that experience like? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, it was it was uh, surreal at first and then I settled into it. I was surprised at how much I uh, actually... Um, how much I actually uh, grew to love part aspects of that, you know, doing yeah. pre-hospital for 20 years, yeah. you, uh, you, you get to take care of the crisis moments. Uh, you get to stabilize, but you don't get to know patients. And, and when you go into work and, and when I went into the ICU, not only to do that, but I signed up to make a little, a few extra bucks into a contract a weekend contract so i always worked three in a row and so i'd get a lot of times the same patients three days in a row yeah and you really got to know families and stuff it was a lot more it was it was more fun and uh and more fulfilling than i ever thought would be possible i I, it was not it was not what i wanted to do uh it was a it was a necessary thing but i grew to love it and and appreciate nurses to a level that I'd never appreciated nurses yeah. now that you are <laughs> oh yeah you're right 100%. like just totally different mindset totally different job skills yes well I why I bring that up because I had a very similar experience when I got out of nursing school and then I worked in the ED and then I went to the ICU and Chad I'll never forget the first patient that I had of course my preceptor uh, I was with him and I walked in and there was tubes out of every orifice and there were pumps. And I looked, I was like, I'm scared to go into the room. I don't even want to touch this guy. But I'll tell you, interesting is it was the best, worst experience I think I had in my career. The best because it, uh, I learned how to be an educator because of talking with the families because right. they were scared of that, right? I learned, this sounds bad, but it's true. I learned how to watch someone die after you did everything and the dignity in that and it was just a it was a very special moment i'm so glad that i had it 
And, um, but yeah, then I transitioned out, but I'm, it, I'm glad that I had it, but it is very, very unique. Experience. It is. It, it <laughs> so is. It was, it was a, definitely a different experience for me. Well, one of the qualities in you that I have seen, and I've heard other people say this is, I don't know how else to say besides, you're just like the coolest dude. Like you walk in the <laughs> yeah. calmness, you've had the cool hair, your hair is shorter now, but your presence That's when you COVID. come in. Yes, COVID got me. Yes. That's what I keep telling everybody. It's like it's standing on top and, and it, it, it did keep breaking off. And I've heard that that was COVID. So I'm blaming COVID for okay, all of you're it. Weak and, weak and blame COVID. <laughs> but your, um, your mere presence, I'm sure, you know, you touch so many, you know, families and doing that. And now you're back on the aircraft. But I know we're, we're going to, this is probably going to be heavy. We're going to get into some pretty serious stuff. But Let's break the ice a little bit, and I'm, I'll ask you. And I haven't asked any of the um, any of the guests yet. But is there something maybe comical, a story that comes to your mind that you experienced recently, maybe in the ICU or maybe on the aircraft that you could share with us? Yeah, you know there there were <laughs> there are a couple that come to mind. Uh, probably the first is you know when I went to doing air medical and with a much more advanced scope of practice than I'd ever done before. You know, when I, I tell all these firefighter buddies, they're like, hey, do you love doing it? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, you know, what's the, like, what's it like? And, and I used to just tell them, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way um, the, the level of responsibility you're held to, the level of accountability and the advanced scope and the way you think. You know, I, I, I equate it to this and I used to tell uh, the paramedic students, um, all the time, like when I was working on a box or in the fire department, either way, like, um, you know, maybe one to two out of my calls were pretty serious. And those were the strokes or the heart attacks. And then when I went to air medical, there was a dimension of medicine that I had no idea. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, now I was looking for those strokes and heart attacks. Those were the simple calls for me. I wasn't trying. And so that was something. And so after doing that for the last seven or eight years and then getting the nursing and I go to nursing and it's like, I have no idea. And I remember sitting in the orientation, uh, for the medical ICU and everybody's like, do you have any questions about this? And I'm sitting with all these 22 year old nurses and, uh, they're, they're, they've got these questions that are medical. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I've got that. I've got that. And then I remember I just looked at the educator and I was like, Hey, so can you talk me over, um, like what's the proper way to clean an adult female and wipe after they pooped themselves? And they all just stopped and stared at me like, are you serious? And I was like, look, I've had kids and I know how to do it for my kids, but this is a grown woman and I don't want to be the, look like right. some perv that's sitting in here doing something in, inappropriate, but I would want to, right, if right. it was my wife, I'd yes. want her to be fully clean or my yes. daughter. And I'm like, I don't, I've never wiped a butt, an adult butt. And so and they were like, you've intubated, you've done chest tubes, you've done, I've done a pericardial synthesis, but you're worried about wiping butts. And I'm like, yes, I've never done it. So that's a humbling experience. It was like, I don't, I've got to, I don't know how to do this floor nursing stuff. My gosh. And it is painful to have to ask those questions. I've been there. Yeah. And then to ask like, how do I put in a a BMS, a bowel management system? Like, is this appropriate? Or, or, you know, when I'm given a, a suppository for the first time, you know, oh. it's like, 
hey, this is as uncomfortable for me as it is yeah, you. Yeah. Like, oh, all of those just weird stuff that you're just, you know. Oh. And then, they, so they weren't ready for me. They weren't <laughs> ready for me at all. And then uh, probably another funny story is coming off of, I worked nights for the first uh, like 10 months. Okay. And that was rough. Going back to just three straight nights yeah. just shook my whole schedule up. Uh, but then I went, when I transferred to days, I'd forgotten I'd been on nights and nights are different, yeah, right? You're in different. an institution, nights are different. And so I remember, uh, I had this one patient right when I was on days and, uh, the patient was an older patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a little bitter. She was, she was spunky. <laughs> and so as I was in the room taking care of her, she started cussing me oh. quite a bit, you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, I look, I'm not a 22 year old, you know, and she was used to just intimidating these nurses. And so uh, you, may have, all to, had these you may have to, you may have to blurp this out. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I'll let you censor it as needed. Um, but I remember I was walking out of the room and I just started firing back at her a little bit to let her know that we're, Hey, we're, we're yeah, good. We're okay. And she was appreciating it. Okay. And so, uh, as I'm walking out of the room, I had opened up the door and cause she was on precautions, contact precautions. So her door was completely shut. I opened up the door and I'm taking off all my gear. And she told me, you can just get the hell out. You can get the hell out of my room. And I turned around and I said to her, I said, I said, ma'am, I'm going to, I'm a grown ass man. I will leave when I'm ready to. (laughs) And she just smiled at me. I didn't realize how much my voice carried. The door was open. And so as I walk out of this room, all these nurses are heading to me and all these brand new little doctors are looking at me like, what's just going on? Is there about to be a fight in this room? (laughs) Meanwhile, she's having in the family actually nominated me for a Daisy award. Oh my (laughs) God. Which is so great. But it was, and she was just that she needed that uh, relationship, but it was, I, when (laughs) they were like, everybody's eyes and I was like oh they're not ready for me I had to adjust to becoming a nurse now I've got to adjust to becoming a day nurse this is tough that changed everything for that patient oh absolutely that is so fun man we need uh we need to laugh a little bit because there's there's so much to be uh uh yeah it, it it gets us sometimes uh but no those are great stories and we appreciate that and i know everybody's listening going okay yes I've, I've been there and where do i push the limit that's great so chad we wanted to um i wanted to talk to you about you know i was thinking of a title for this and i wanted to call it maybe you know mental strength i know we've heard the word resilience a lot and I want to talk to you about a call and you know which one I'm talking about um, that happened to you was three, four years ago. And I will, I will set the stage by telling you that this, I don't, I don't know how far we want to go on this and we both agree we're just going to let it flow. It, it, we've all had bad calls, probably one of the most um, undescribable calls I think that I have heard about just for the whole thing that happened in involving that. So one, I know the transparency in that you agreed to this. And I was a little nervous when I approached you and I said, what do you think? And you know, you were immediately said, yeah, I want to talk about it. And before we sort of jump in, you've got to share this experience internationally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So 
What you went to? Was it Ireland? Uh, yeah, Scotland. Scotland. Okay. So Edinburgh, Scotland is where I went uh, most recently. I've shared it uh, mostly just across the state in okay. different aspects, um, and just a message of resiliency and okay. how do we do that? And um, but most recently um, went to Edinburgh, Scotland, at, to the World Extreme Medicine Conference yeah. um, in November. Okay. And mm -hmm. uh, went out there and spoke and was blown away at the response. So, I mean, Chad, I want to, why did you do that? Because I, I and, and why, I, th I think it's important for me to explain why that question. <clears throat> Talking about my experience, mm -hmm. I still, I do it because I know it helps people. But every time that you, re like you relive it and it takes a piece out of you. Yeah. Why sign up to do that and cheering your heart? Because it becomes emotional, I know. Yeah, it does. Um, but um, I'm a firm believer. It's funny, you know, um, my last name, Hollingsworth. Um, <laughs> the family motto way back uh, when in England, when it started up, was uh, the family motto is to bear that which must be born. Mm. And it's like. Oh, that's not the motto I wanted. You know, okay. yeah. <laughs> it's really yeah. not right. Okay. I wanted to, you know, to, to, to excel at everything I put my hands to. That's a great family motto, um, yeah. to, uh, to, uh, have riches galore. Mm -hmm. That's, that would be a great family motto, right? I'm, I'm all for that, but to suffer like, yeah. Hey, here's your lifelong <laughs> suffering. Right. So, um, but I take that to heart and I think that, you know, uh, words have meaning, names have meaning, and I truly believe that part of my purpose on this earth is to, uh, we all have experiences. And when you have experiences, if you share those experiences, if you can, if you can, if you can weather the storm yeah. and then you can share those experiences, yeah. they help others. And I mean, that's the only reason I'm in medicine is to help others. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's just part of that core belief and core of who I am. Yeah. Well, me too. We share that. You, you and I both bared it all before yeah. at the point of tears at times. <laughs> yeah. And so let's, if we can, let's go back to that day yeah. and tell us how your shift started. You know, typical shift. It was, uh, it was an August day, hot, mm -hmm. over a hundred degrees and here in the wonderful humid Southeast. Uh, so you can't breathe. By yeah. The way, right. right? You walk yeah. Outside. Just miserable, humid, hot, um, working with a partner that, um, a very great caregiver, uh, no issues there. Great rapport between the two of us. So it was, it was a great experience. I mean, it was mm -hmm. like, you come on the shift looking forward to it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, um, we get dispatched out to a call. There was some, um, there was some confusion okay. on the dispatch end. Uh, we could tell that things were already escalated. And, uh, so we're going out to a rural farming community, um, scene flight. And as we're being dispatched out, there's confusion as to the age of the patient. We okay. knew that there was a incident involving farm equipment. Um, and we initially thought that, you know, um, it was a, uh, uh, like a 60 year old okay. male. But it right. turns out it's a it's a younger pediatric patient. When did you know that it wasn't sixty and it was a kid? Um, not until right before landing. Okay, so, so. you get the information mm -hmm. for those that haven't experienced, you know, flying for one. You you know it's bad. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. 
what do you your your thought process while you're heading out there knowing that you know people we've been on the other side yeah. where you being on the ground you can't wait to hear the aircraft to be like they're here they're finally here but what is your process heading that way what are you preparing for you in know, your mind I, it's so important and i you know after being an educator for so many years and and teaching so many students across the mid-state uh, here in tennessee um, you know, we always teach that uh, the call starts a dispatch. Yes. And so it's it's game on from mm -hmm. that moment. Um, with the service I work for, it's really, we're very intentional. Okay. That during the flight out, as soon as we get dispatch information, of course, we're looking for age, weight, any other kind of very pertinent information as much as we can grab as soon as possible so that we're already figuring out medications. Yeah. We're figuring out, you know, what plan of action uh, one of us is taking primary, the other's taking secondary. And so we're discussing things back and forth, but it's mm -hmm. a complete team environment. Yeah. And uh, so you're you're discussing all that you might encounter and yeah. kind of preparing for the worst, hoping for the best, yeah. preparing for the worst and being ready to act yeah. when you first get there. So. So, so with that, I would translate this for people that are listening that are not medicine or family members. It is almost like putting... I'll use it because it's one of the most famous superheroes. You're literally putting on the Superman outfit. Like you become a different person. You think differently. You are ready to deal with things. And that it you're in a different frame of mind when you are on duty yeah. than it is for you and I just talking. So I just wanted to make that relevant because you do lock into a different individual, which you have to. And so walk us through your approaching the scene. Now things start to change and you're finding out a little bit more information. What yeah. is that? So, you know, initially thinking it's a farm equipment accident, I've done, you know, I mean, I've run calls where people have been sucked into a hay baler, yep. you know, and thrown out the other end. Like I actually went through the hay baler and, and taking and they're broken and busted mm -hmm. up. And so you got these ideas of, you know, entanglement issues, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but this one was definitely different. We landed out into a, uh, recently plowed field, um, we're, um, there's some folks escorting us up and we're heading towards a, a silo. And at this point you're like, whoa, you know, and especially with my background as a firefighter, you know, we used to do tabletop exercises all the time. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, you got time downtime at the hall and you're mm -hmm. wondering, well, what are you going to do in this situation? And we would do these drills with each other of like, what are you having to think about? What are you having to do um, for these kinds of situations? And this was like, you couldn't tabletop this. Like I, my imagination couldn't tabletop the experience that we were walking into. Um, so as we walk up to the scene, we get up to the door of the silo. I've never been in a silo before. Okay. And any silo uh, training that I'd had in the back and, you know, and especially as a firefighter was, Oh, if somebody falls in and they get pulled into the, mm -hmm. into the grain or corn or whatever, uh, from the top, it's mm -hmm. like a drowning and you're having to place mats out yeah. to make sure you can spread the weight. And so that you don't sink in there as well. And then I'm, I was trained in high and high and low angle rescue. Yeah. So everything was that mentality. This okay. was, we had no idea exactly what we were walking into, but we saw the, uh, the local fire chief that was, keeping people out okay and only allowing the necessary people in okay and so we knew we were like okay like there are 
20 providers outside the door wanting to go in that they won't let in. Okay. And then everybody clears out of the way. It's like parting for my partner and I to walk in. And it's like, man, what are we? Yeah. You know, you, it's it's an unspoken, but like, yeah. what are we getting ready to walk into? Yeah. And it was. It was like walking into hell. Yeah. I don't know how else to, to truly describe that. Um, we walked into the silo. Um, there was... Um, for those that don't know, there's um, in these silos, there's an auger at the bottom that sweeps and it's centered in the middle of the floor. And so it sweeps around uh, the diameter of the floor. And uh, it it's it pulls the corn towards the middle or whatever grain you have that goes out through a chute that gets loaded onto a truck or what have you. And so... Um, there was probably, there were aspects of the silo that maybe had just a few inches of corn. There were other aspects of the areas of the silo that had several feet of corn still okay. in the, in the silo itself. And so, um, as you walk in, everybody looks up to you and it's yeah. like, Oh, you yeah. know, you're in the flight suit and yeah. it doesn't pre hospitality doesn't get any yeah. higher level of care. So everybody's looking to you to fix what they couldn't. Cause if they could have fixed it, it already would have yeah. been. Right, because they, mm-hmm. they their intent was a hundred percent there, and we walk in, it's like, oh, what did yeah. you see? Do you want to talk about it? Um, yeah, I mean, um, you go as far as you want with that. Yeah, yeah, that... no, I can, uh, you know, um, or generally speaking, you know, probably one of the, um, I'm seeing, uh, who a person who's now a dear friend of mine, who's a paramedic, was the ground paramedic first in there, holding the hand of a young pediatric patient talking to this young pediatric patient, um, look up okay. and there was a look of desperation in, in his eyes mm-hmm. that I knew we knew how mm-hmm. serious it was at that point. Yeah. And so, um, when we first got there, the, the patient was still alive. The patient was, um, breathing. They had just started, they'd applied oxygen. Um, and like within, before we can set our equipment down. And it was such a surreal experience because literally the way we had to step in, if you set something down, um, it would sink into the, the corn itself. So you'd lose your equipment. Yeah. And so you're having to be very deliberate in what you're doing and, and how to approach the patient. Cause you don't want to make the situation any worse. You're still not sure of what all you're dealing with. Yeah. And, um, so we, um, yeah, we, we just started our ABCs, you okay. know, it's, it's, you, you go back to automatic and start ABCs okay. until you can figure out what's going on. Now the, you know, the child was still, um, um, partially covered in the, in the corn. So we didn't know the extent of injury. I didn't even know how the, the, the child was fully entangled at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that the child was in dire need of as quick of an extrication as possible. And so we're trying to work through that. Okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about the transition because I, I don't think we need to go any deeper just because I think people are imagining, you know, yeah, it's terrible, but the transition between it's an alive patient and the patient's injuries are so severe that it's unsurvivable. Yeah. And, I don't know how else to say it besides you watched him die. Correct. That like takes my breath. Yeah. 
So there's a transition period. Drink of water a second. Mm -hmm. We need to time out. Uh, so <clears throat> there's a transition period where <clears throat> you can't do anything. It's highly emotional, which is against what any of us are trained. You know, we're ready to get the patient and take him to the hospital. And <clears throat> so now you do a timeout. Everybody's out, and um, family arrives. Is that right? Yeah, there were family outside, and and I do want to transition uh, before we transition totally to that. Like, um, there, everything that could have possibly be done was absolutely done, um, and I don't say that in a defense of my actions or anybody else. I say that in it's important to know that that. Everybody had put forth 150%. I mean, when I say, like, you couldn't imagine the tabletop experience, yeah. there's corn dust flying around. It's probably 140 degrees in that silo. Yeah. We worked for close to an hour yeah. trying to trying to rescue. We had a local farmer coming in and out who was on the phone with the manufacturer who made the piece to try to figure out how to get this entanglement uncovered, undone, to get out. Because of the corn dust, we couldn't use any electric instruments inside the inside the uh, silo because of the flammability, you know, okay. the explosive nature. Because there's so much dust flying through the air, um, um, it's an IDLH, in danger of life and health environment that we're working in. Temperature, oxygen levels, everything tr truly combustible. Um, and so it was just that nightmare. When I say you couldn't tabletop it, it was from a, if you're a firefighter looking in on it or anybody that's done any kind of, you know, confined space, any of that type of uh, training, you understand like this was, and I mean, it was, I mean, it was a team effort from everybody. I mean, literally our pilot was outside the silo and he'd bring us some equipment and then, cause they'd let him, he, him in and out, but then they were wanting to bring certain tools in and he's, cautioning the chief like hey like are we sure we can do this and there's just i mean there was it was an amazing effort by all providers on that scene yeah. um uh, but it did reach the point to where it's like we've done all we can do right we've we've put in all the blood we have we've mm -hmm. um we've performed all the interventions we can and we still can't can't we're not even in a place to be able to transport at this point yeah we can't get this little beautiful boy out of uh out of equipment yeah and um so yeah at some point you're kind of stuck and um you know probably the hardest thing that i ever did in that moment is knowing that um being in the suit and being in the role that i was in having the understanding and my partner not talking and my partner's like, I'm going to call our medical director and then we'll start making appropriate phone calls because this, we can't do anymore. And, um, meanwhile, there are probably eight to 10 people in this silo with us. And I just had to turn around and look and say, everybody needs to understand this is no longer a rescue. This is now going to be a recovery. We can't do anything more. We've done all that we can. And I just remember that dear friend of mine, Kyle, who says, 
no. I was just talking to him. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I get it. I, I'm open to ideas. If you can think of an intervention that we haven't done, I'm 100% on board. But you know where we are. We're now in a systole. We've been in a systole. We can't do anything more. And so at that point, I just said, look, this is going to be a difficult situation from here out. Um, because of it being a rural community, um, the, they called a local doctor in to come and, and pronounce um, time of death. Um, sheriff's department came, took some pictures, and they all, as quickly as they came in, they left. And then we're left with this. Like, what do I going I can't. There's no protocol for this, right? Like, there's how. I'm not trained for this. There's no protocol. But I can't just walk out and act as if. I mean, somebody's got to take responsibility. Somebody's got to deliver this baby boy back to his mama. And who's outside screaming, by the way, that we can hear. I mean, it's. This is not. And. You know, I'm a firm believer. I love what AHA has done with like uh, with us working codes and let the family see and all that. But this was not that situation at all. It's like, yeah, I know. I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing right or wrong. I don't. There is no. There's no rule book anymore. And uh, so, yeah. And um, you still expect it. Pe- the people there still expected you to have the answers because you have the suit on. Yeah. Which is uh, a very, <clears throat> that is uh, a situation that there's a lot that goes through your mind, right? You're yeah. helpless. You're in unfamiliar territory. You're supposed to be all about saving a life and you're transitioning out and you're having to reset. Then you have to still be a leader on the scene when you are as confused as anyone else because you can't process what's happening. Yeah. And then this turns, um, you're communicating with the family, you extract um, the young man out of the silo, and I want to change gears because I, um, people's minds are racing right now, mine, this is heavy, emotional, but I want to ask you, you get back you get back in the aircraft after everything is done, and which takes hours. Walk us through what you're thinking about at that point in time. Do you remember? I don't think I wasn't. Okay. Um, you know, um, the aftermath is probably the hardest part. When you're in the job, I can do the job. It is the aftermath that lives with you. Um, And so I remember the three of us getting back in an aircraft. Um, The pilot checking us leaving the scene. And us flying back to the base. And nothing was spoken. Nothing. Nobody. That doesn't happen. You know, we go on calls all the time. I've seen some really crazy, bad stuff. 
I've experienced a lot of tragedy um, in my own life and in others um, as a caregiver. But there's always like, okay, let's blow off some steam. Let somebody tell me a joke. Let's do something. And it's nothing. It's just silent. And everybody's left in their own thoughts. And that was that was surreal. That was, again, different. Yeah. Um, you know? Um, you get back to base. Yeah. And I'm going to share with you my where I come into this yeah. with you. So I get a phone call. And... They let me know, hey, this is bad, bad event, and we're just letting you know, which is not uncommon, you know, especially you know, since we all work together. And I had shared this with Travis in the previous episode is I didn't want to call you. There was resistance to calling you because I didn't know if I had a place to call you. And this is a key point because if you ever think you need to check on your brothers and sisters, you need to do it regardless of how uncomfortable you feel. And I shared with Travis, I'd made that decision long ago that I'm going to do the right thing regardless if I want to or not. And it was a few hours maybe after you got back to base. And uh, I think your partner answered the phone and was like, hey, you know, you know, just chatting and... um then you and I got on the phone, if I remember correctly. And I just shared with you, I said, hey, Chad, I heard, and I just want you to know that I'm here uh, for you. Do you remember that? No. I mean, I do, but I don't. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, and, and let me share with you what you did. And we talked a little bit about this, because there's a back part of the story, is... You said, yeah, I'm doing okay. And you were your, your upbeat, normal voice. And then you laid into it. And you told me every detail. And uh, I like lived that moment with you. I was like, wow. That was uh, that was intense, and so um, after we finished talking, we were still on the phone. But after you told me, you said, "I'm so sorry," and you said, "I didn't mean to do that," but but I knew what you were doing because the same things happened to me, and you needed a safe place to decompress. We've all been there. So for those that are questioning whether they need to make the call or not. Um, you need to do it. And if you don't need to have the answers, you need to be able to be a sounding board and listen. And that's what I was able to do. And a couple of years later, we were at a conference and uh, I asked you about that phone call and you said, I don't remember the conversation, it, which was a, a really important thing. We we know that, you know, we have to set ourselves up and, and you know, we have to unload and we have to have a safe place in this you know, peer support is such a big, big deal because it was in the moment, it was fresh and you felt safe and I felt safe. And, um, it was a really powerful learning experience for me, but I wanted to ask you now that you are, your years past the event, did you ever feel like I'm done after this, that I don't want to do this anymore? Hmm. 
Personally, no. Personally, I did not. How come? Um, I think, you know, if I were in a different situation or in a different program or anything else, I don't know that I'd had the same answer. Okay. But the response to everything that I went through. And the response from others? From others. Okay. That everything I went through and everything that my partner went through um, was so done well. It was done so well that I think that the uh, uh, it, it helped me along the process. Yeah. And just, I mean, especially, I mean, we're talking about leadership and yeah. this resiliency and everything else. I mean, when we got back to, we got back to base, there was, uh, again, immediately there was set up for a critical incident stress debriefing. So into at a local church, my partner, I received a phone call from administration of my program that said, Hey, we'll take the base out of service the rest of the shift. What do you need us to do? I've heard about what's happened. We're on your side. You'll get paid for as long as you need to be off. Take your time. And my answer was, no, I actually want to stay in service. We've got this thing we need to go do. I just want it, but I need to run a regular call. I just need to know that life can be normal again. I need to know that I can run a heart attack and, okay. oh, look, I got a STEMI and yeah. <laughs> look what I can do yeah. and transport a patient and it be the a good outcome. Mm-hmm. I just want to get back to work. That was my okay. natural intrinsic response. Um, my partner said he felt the same. Okay. And so outside of going to the initial CISD, and I think that you had called me maybe before that had even happened, mm-hmm. um, which is why I was able to go to that and just, um, and they involved everybody. They involved in that CSD. It was done so well. They involved mm-hmm. the farmer that kept coming back in and out. This wasn't just first responders yeah. sitting here. This is every, you know, anybody that had interaction and to hear, um, non-medical people from the community yeah thank us for what we did wow um in the midst of a disaster um it again kind of reiterated like you're doing a job okay not every one of them's going to go the way you want not every one of them's going to go the way you expect but this is part of what you signed up for and you know that but you don't know the extent that that may take you until you experience something like that and then even afterwards uh my medical director called me the next day and said hey um i'm reading your report reading the chart um that my partner and i did together on that one uh and um i just want you to know that uh sounds like it was really tough is there anything i can do for you and I just remember telling my medical director, hey, you need to know, you need to be aware that there were things I did that I don't have protocols for on this call. There were, I didn't know what other action to take and I was put in the position to have to make a decision. I'm okay if you yell at me over doing that in a couple of weeks, but can I have a couple of days to not get reprimanded? Wow. And... That, much like the conversation I'd had with you, opened up the floodgates again for me to talk through 
and then to have the reassurance from my medical director, which made all the difference in the world to me, right? Here's the person that uh, I work under their license. This is the one that oversees how I give care and that has every right to tell me you're wrong about this. And he has in the past, like, Hey, why did you do this? And I tell him my rationale. He's like, like where your mind's going, but that was the wrong decision in the future. Do this. Mm -hmm. So this is someone that I truly respect. And now all of a sudden his response is you did everything you could. Sounds like I I probably would have done the exact same actions. I'd have taken the same actions that, you know, that just, it lets you know, you didn't screw up medically. You don't own the, the guilt. You did what you could. And so I think all of those things, you calling, uh, my head administrator for the program and then my medical director, um, for admin to tell me you're going to have time off. We'll pay you. Don't come into work if you can't handle it. It was so well, we were so well supported. I wanted to do nothing more than just continue doing my job. This is what I love to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that made all the difference. Okay. I don't know, had I not had that same response, those same peers mm-hmm. checking on me, the same situation, if it had played out different, I may not be the same. I know that there are plenty of people from that call that left left fire service, left EMS, they were done. Um, and so, and multiples, not, not just one or two career Career ending done. I'm out, um, or severe PTSD, um, afterwards. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to take this opportunity to uh, put some leadership into this Chad, because you bring a good point up for those that are listening to this. We have a lot of directors, administrators, and team members that are listening that, you know, are field training officers to directors. The point that Chad, for everybody listening, that Chad is making, please understand the details and the significance of this is if you are administrator and you at any level and you hear that your team member has had a call that is this bad, or it doesn't have to be this bad, that is significant. When they hear your voice that you care, it is a game changer for all of us to have the leaders that we look up to, and sometimes we don't see ourselves as leaders, for them to reach out to say, I am here for you. What do you need? What can I do for you? It is the difference. Some that are like, I'm not doing this anymore. My administration leaders don't care about me even though you do but it's the small actions that is such a powerful thing that i didn't want to lose and you know back to your point where this is career ending for many we know why i can be honest with you chad it may have been it for me too we don't know because we're not put in that position but i'm going to fast forward now we're post this several years yeah do you think about it Mm. Yeah, I mean... In what way? Well, I mean, you know, in the immediate, I had to process things in a different way. I'd always, you know, as a... You do this job for 20 years, especially if you do it in your own community. There were always intersections that I'd drive through that I remember exactly what happened at this intersection. Yes. Uh, There were times where, you know... um, 
you know, you literally could hear the same screams that you'd heard on scenes when you drive by an area. Like you, there are, whether it's in the intrusive thoughts, um, I had that uh, with this. I remember walking in to go to teach a paramedic class within a couple weeks of this, maybe a month, somewhere within that first month. Um, and walking into the building and when I opened up the door to go in, the dust kind of flew up and the sun caught it just right. And I could see the dust flying in the air and I literally stepped right back into that silo. I could feel the heat. I could smell the smells. I could see the scenes. I was there and I know it took me at least a minute, 30 seconds to a minute of telling myself, you're not there. You're not there. You are here. You are on this campus. You are not in that silo, but I was there. Like I saw it. I felt it. I, I could feel the heat. I could, everything about it. I was there. All your senses but were I, everything was, and I had to just continually tell myself, you're not there. You're not there. You're not there. Until I finally opened my eyes back up. Like I would, I'd open and I'd be back in the scene. I close it. You're not there. You're not there. Open my eyes. I'm still there for 30 seconds to a minute. I'm trying to convince myself, take hold of what's real in this moment, which is ironic because what was real was I was mm -hmm. still processing all of that, right? Like what's real wasn't what's tangible. What's real is where I was mentally, where I was emotionally, spiritually even. And I remember uh, eventually could see where I was and I just walked back to my classroom. It was, you know, an hour before the students got there, me to get there to do my morning prep stuff and I just sat down and cried. Had you cried before? No. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe teared up, but For I, you, I have never wept. Lost it. I yeah. wept. Yeah. Like that was a weeping moment. Yeah. You know. I had a very similar experience where I never cried, really, um, until I delivered my message for the first time mm -hmm. at a conference. And um, it was at a big pediatric conference. And I delivered the message in full raw detail. And I remember going up to my room and it was, I lost it to weeping for minutes and minutes. But it was years after the event mm -hmm. that it happened. And I think that's an important place for yeah. that. Um, what, what did you learn from this, Chad? There's so many lessons, but maybe even framing this as in, what do you want to share with your students and the people that are listening to this? This is another level, and I hate to use that word over, but this is this is a career-ending call for many, and here you are still engaged, still upbeat. You still think about it. You talk about it. You have a relationship with some of the family members. What do you teach people about it? Yeah, um... A few things. So it reiterated to me. I remember being asked one time um, by somebody outside the medical field, you know, you always get those, you go to social gathering or something, and especially if they know you've done this for any length of time. And when you're new, you're happy to share these crazy stories. And, you know, I never, my first day uh, as an EMT student in an ambulance, I ran three codes. On my first shift ever in an ambulance, I ran three codes. And I thought, Okay, I can do this. Like I, this is this is exciting. Yeah. It's different. It's yeah. irreverent. It's uh, a beautiful process. Yeah. It's like this is cool, but weird and like 
okay, I'm in. Mm-hmm. That and my first day on ambulance, I'm in. But after time, you only see so much, and man, you see it too much, and then it just it, you know it it, it shouldered your burden. And I remember trying to figure out how do I do this, and I remember somebody asking because I did I used to I did ministry work for yeah. a while before I ever went into EMS, and somebody asked me how I deal with it, and so for me, I remember clearly thinking how do I answer this to this person you know and it made me reconsider and I didn't have an answer I just said I do it right it's a job I I enjoy I love to do what I do I feel like I can make a difference and so but in that but it made me question like what how do you do this okay and it made me really dive deeper and so not to get on a total religious uh soapbox here but I will tell you you know my background before I ever came into all this I have a degree in philosophy and I studied uh religion mm-hmm. as a philosophy and studied the major religions of the world and so uh, spent a lot of time studying these things and that's always been an integral part of me the for me uh, I love like the uh, the movie Rudy and I don't, oh, I don't know the movie. But, but but Rudy you know Rudy goes to this priest after he's been rejected and denied all these times to figure out an answer why is this happening to me, right? And I, the love with the priest's answer was like, I, you know, where's God in all of this? Yeah. Where's God? And the priest looks at Rudy and says, there's two things of all these years of me being a priest that I can answer definitively. One, there is a God. And two, I'm not him. Powerful. I, mean, I remember huge, that. Right? Yes. I mean, it just like, okay. And I don't, so call it God, higher power, whatever, something beyond humanity right? It's something that's bigger than us. And so for me, that's what I believe in. I believe that the, the human body is too uh, remarkably made to be just a happenstance. Like the defense system, that's what I loved and was passionate about teaching and education because it's so amazingly well put together. The bone structure that surrounds the the, the most integral parts, right? The heart, brain, and lungs are the most well-protected in the body. And how does all this, is it just happenstance? I don't know that it is. It just is amazing. So, and I'd known I'd teach, taught this way, but now I'm confronted with this question of how do I, how do I keep doing this? Yeah. Have you see so much crap? Mm-hmm. How do you do it? And I just remember thinking, you know how it is, is that People say, you know, you used to call them paragods. You know, you get the paramedic, get the God complex. Because, man, this person was dead. I delivered some skills, and now they're alive. Kudos to me, <laughs> right? And so I made this difference. Yes. I did this. Yeah. And there's a, that's, it's a beautiful sense of pride and ownership yeah. in your work that can come with that. It's beautiful. It's, it's empowering. It gives you the courage to continue on. But not every call goes that way, right? right. And so uh, for me, it was the realization that one, there's something at work here bigger than me. Okay. Two, so I'm not responsible. I didn't bring somebody into this world. I'm not responsible for killing them. I'm not responsible for their death. Okay. As long as I am the best prepared and the best trained that I possibly can be going into each and every shift. Okay. Am I fully present? Am I 100% all in right now for this shift? And if I am, and I've kept up with some, you know, recent peer-reviewed articles mm-hmm. that's telling me these are the way medicine's changing, these are things we've learned. 
Um, am I, am I keeping up? Am I, am I making sure I'm keeping my certification? I take it seriously, right? My education, I, we all have to research ACLS, PALS, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your license, whatever you got to get your CEUs, man, take that seriously. Like, okay, what, what changed in this series of ACLS and PALS? Mm-hmm. Why did that change? Where did those numbers come from? Let me go back to the science behind it to understand what it is. Oh, you mean ACLS drugs? Don't really make a difference on 30-day mortality rates? Mm-hmm. No, but we can at least give them the chance. So let's continue to do it while we can until science tells us something different. Mm-hmm. But knowing that lets me, okay, let me make sure I'm doing the right thing. Not just to cover my butt, not yeah. just to CYA, but to actually do the right thing. And so for me, that mentality came into play when I was really asked that, dove deep into it. Okay, and this is kind of the methodology of, tried to train the students that I've had the the pleasure, the opportunity to teach. If I'm the best prepared, the best trained that I possibly can be, and I'm a hundred percent fully present on each shift, I get to go home. And I believe that there's a power bigger than me. I didn't create life. Mm -hmm. I don't take it away. That's a decision bigger than me. Mm -hmm. And I gave that patient, whether win or lose, I gave him the best chance at success at, probability of life, mm-hmm. furtherance of life. Then I get to lay my head on my pillow at night and rest. I get to go to sleep and I don't have to live with regrets. Yeah. And that's the level I hold myself to. Okay. And that's the level I've tried to instill in others because I don't, the, 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 the bad thing is I don't get to celebrate the wins. I don't get to be the paragon. I don't get to be the guy that struts in the room and chest out and shoulders back and look at me. This is what I did. Here's your patient. You're welcome. Right. I don't get to be that guy. That's okay. That's just hum. That's humility. That's humbling. Um, but I don't have to wear, I don't have to carry the burden yes. of all those losses. Right. We're only called when things are bad. Most of the time, right. Other than your, your frequent flyers mm-hmm. and the stuff that you don't, yeah. you know, but when it's, when it's game time, it's a bad call already. So am I ready? And that's how I live. That's how I can do this long-term. And that's why this hasn't been a game changer or an end game for me. Um, because I still care about what I do. Still care about making that human connection on every patient. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I believe in humility that I'm giving my best. And that I'm as prepared as I possibly can be to confront this. And when I see weakness, I address it. Yeah. That preparation is such a key thing. And you've grown through this. Mm. You have. And I think that's the difference. Like you, you, um, you're trying to become a better version of you instead of being lost in the moment of that moment of letting that define you, which you haven't, you're looking forward. What can I give? And get getting outside of myself is a huge thing. And you and I share that. And that's a, that's a really, really powerful thing that I hope everybody takes away from that. And, you know, as we get ready to conclude this, Chad, tell us, how do you stay mentally healthy and sharp? What are a couple of things that you've done that really has made a difference for you long term. You're post this event three or four years. That's a long time. And it does you you've you've had an opportunity to 
pack it away, unload it, load it again. You've been able to dance with this experience or have a relationship with this experience that you have had. What are some things that you do that you could share with everyone that has made a difference for you? I think the the biggest thing is being willing to unplug. How do you do that? So for me, it's uh, I found things I was things I was passionate about outside of EMS, okay. outside of fire, outside of being a first responder. My identity is not solely tied up in that. Outside of being an educator, I love it, and I could put. I will never be able to put enough hours especially on the education side of things to, to really accomplish what I'd love to accomplish as an educator. I can never, I can never meet that, what I see as a need in the field or what, uh, the level of expectation of myself of what I could do. I can always do more. Um, but I had to step away from all that. For me, I write, um, I make music, you know, um, I, uh, hike, I get out in nature where things are unruly and wild and no protocols exist and you just have no choice but to be present in the moment and to to absorb the world around you. Did that exp- go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean it's uh, I pay attention to the bird yeah. songs. Mm. <laughs> literally, yeah. literally walk and I hear something and I'll stop. And I'll try to talk to birds. <laughs> That's crazy, yeah. man. But, you're but I'll whistle. Yeah. And I'll just absorb that moment. And I know by uh, being fully present in that moment, away from everything. Uh, you know, I even heard, I think, uh, maybe on the, the last podcast that you and Travis did, that um, you were talking about podcasts, listening to podcasts and stuff. I've been very, uh, very uh, determined uh, and focused that I only allow myself to listen to so much a re- revolving around medicine because you can get eat up with it, man. And you can go and, you know, trying to keep up with all the stuff and everything I just said, making sure the best trained, you can excuse it. You can, and you can convince yourself that you're doing good by doing this. But if you don't ever truly unplug from that, um, then you're not a whole a complete human, you know, because that's only one aspect of your life. Did the experience force you to do that? Because what you're talking about, I know it, you know it. I think we both try to live disconnecting. That is not easy. Did the experience force you to do that? Well, and it's, yeah, absolutely. And it's taken me years to get to this point, right? So I'm not saying it's easy for everybody. Uh, I'm your typical firefighter EMS worker. Uh, Up until last May, last May was the first time in almost 25 years of marriage that I've only had one job. Wow. I mean, 60 to 80 hours a week was my life for 20-something years. My wife was a stay-at-home mom with her children. I had a child with some medical issues, so it was more important that um, my wife stay home uh, for an extended period of time. So um, she sacrificed, I sacrificed, and I worked 60 to 80 hours a week for as long as I can remember out of necessity because that was what was right. And it was, what was ingrained in me as I, my upbringing, watching my dad work multiple jobs. And so finally getting to that point to where I was able to stop, you know, and able to say, okay, enough's enough. I, I can contribute this much to our family dynamics. 
I can't do anymore. So we either change our lifestyle. We either, or, you know, you go to work at a job that we can depend on. Um, or, you know, we have to do this as a team, but this is what I'm able to do. And I can't do anymore. I'm not physically able to do that. And that's, that's ridiculous that it took me to almost, you know, to my mid forties, late forties to get to the point where I said enough's enough and I'm unwilling to go back there. So that's, uh, you know, that's tough. Those are hard things. And you're doing it out of like, it wasn't like I was keeping up with the Joneses. Right. Yeah. It you was know, just the... I was raising kids in a three bedroom house with three kids and I was just doing what had to be done. And it, we weren't spending frivolously. We weren't like blowing money. I was doing what I had to do. It's a hard work environment. Thankfully, you know, in our area here locally, we've seen some pay increases for paramedics. Yeah. Um, I know I've talked to firefighting buddies from services that I used to work at that their pay has gotten much better, you know. Um, but I was a full-time firefighter, you know, 10 years ago when I left to go air medical and I was making 12 bucks an hour, man, at a professional ISO class one service. That was, re- that's ridiculous, but that was the service and that was, I loved the job. So I was willing to sacrifice that, but it, it cost me. So, yeah, you have to make the decision. You have to build your lifestyle of what you're willing to do. But you cannot um, cannot uh, emphasize enough the importance of just making a stand. Take a stand for yourself. Yeah, and, and disconnecting. And disconnect. Take and some that, time away. And that is hard. And, and for those that are listening, you know, I think um, what Chad is saying and what he share with everybody to, to summarize this is make sure your priorities in order but have a time set that, you know, I'm checking out at four or five or whatever it is. Your phone's going to continue to go off. You're going to receive texts. All of these things, you have to control your life because everybody wants a piece of you, especially in our world. It's okay not to answer texts, you know, within an hour. It's okay. Just use those things to be able to help you put things in perspective. And... A couple of things I wanted to summarize uh, real quick. And Chad, I wanted to tell you, I am so grateful that you took the time to share this experience with us today. Nice. Thank you for being here. Thanks for the invitation, man. It's my pleasure. It really is. We um, we covered a lot. And for those that are listening, you know, use your resources that are in place for work. If you have EAP, if you don't, don't let that be an excuse for not reaching out. There's people all across the state that can help you. Um, we are not designed to walk alone. And in and, and Chad's story and my personal story, if you try to do this alone, nothing good's going to come out of it. Hold your brother and sister's hands and let them walk on the journey with you. And uh, for this time, I know this is going to impact many people. And you you make us better by sharing this, Chad. So once again, we are grateful and thank you for, for what you do for us in the community. It's my pleasure. It really is. Thank you. I am so grateful that I was able to share this conversation with you today. Please share the episode with others and give it a five-star review. Also, check out the TIMSA website for current information about July's conference as it is approaching quickly, and we would love to see you there. Until next time, remember, be intentional about your leadership journey and lead yourself well.